Welcome to another Poetry Corner podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell at the St. Constantine School. Today, we're going to start a series of episodes on early Christian poetry. It's Lent now. It's early March. I'm actually recording this on March 1st, the first day of March. And what we're talking about today and over the next few episodes, I hope, is this kind of forgotten historical period of poetry from about 100 AD to about four, 500 AD, when Christian poetry is kind of invented. Often, even in great book circles, when we talk about Western literature and the development of Christian literature, whether in the West or the East, we kind of skip over the first few hundred years of Christian poetry. If you, say, are in a program like we have at the St. Constantine School, you'll start with things like Homer and Virgil and move through to people like Augustine, to Beowulf, to Dante, Thomas Aquinas, Gregory Palamas. You'll hit all these great early Christian thinkers and before them, the pagan thinkers that really influenced them. One of the things that we don't often have time for, but is still very important, is early Christian poetry that predates writers like the Beowulf poet and Dante. After all, the Beowulf poet, who is very Christian in his outlook on the world, and Dante, who's perhaps the greatest, the pinnacle of Christian poetry of the medieval era, their poems didn't spring out of thin air. It wasn't like Christians in the first few centuries only cared about, say, writing sermons or reading biblical commentaries, and then around 800 AD, when Beowulf has written, just decided to start writing epic poems. Christians have been writing poems from the beginning. And if you go to a church that sings traditional hymns, either Western or Eastern, some of this poetry might kind of actually crop up in the hymnography of your church. Around Christmas time, we sing the Nativity Troparion of St. Romanus the Melodist. And St. Romanus was writing in the 500s, and he wrote these lines like, today the virgin comes forth to give birth to he who is beyond being. Uh, These resonant, deeply theological lines that are nevertheless highly poetically wrought. But unless you're listening hard and, and know what to listen for, Uh, Sometimes you might even miss it there. So what I want to do for the next few weeks is to kind of remind us that Christians were writing poetry from the beginning, from this generation just after the apostles. And of course, even in the writings of the New Testament, we have poetry. Luke is known as the most poetic gospel, perhaps, because of the canticles in it. Uh, There's the canticle or song of Simeon, uh, now, Lord, let your servant depart in peace according to your word. We have the Magnificat of Mary. We have the Canticle of Zechariah, who sings uh, you know, a dozen or so lines of what we would consider Hebrew-style poetry at the birth of John the Baptist. We have the Gloria in Excelsis, uh, the glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill among men, on whom his favor rests, that the angels sing to the shepherds. So we have all this poetry, especially in Luke, but also elsewhere in the New Testament. And there's a lot of discussion, I'm, I'm no expert on it, of which sayings of Paul are actually quoting from early Christian hymns. So even in the apostolic era, there was poetry and hymnography that was written, but most of the New Testament is written in prose. 
But from the first generation after the apostles, from what we might call the era of the apostolic fathers, we start getting Christian poetry, and especially in our first instance of Christian poetry, a very robust body of work. If I was to ask you, who's the first major Christian poet after the New Testament, one might say Ephraim the Syrian. One might say Ambrose of Milan, the great hymn writer. We could even go back before them, though. They both wrote in the 300s. We could go back perhaps to uh, someone like Lactantius, who was a uh, poet and teacher of the children of Constantine. But in fact, poetry is even written before them. Uh, Clement of Alexandria in the 200s is writing poetry. But before him, we have major poetic works by people like Melito of Sardis in the late 100s. But in fact, the earliest Christian poetry we have after the New Testament is probably from around 100 AD, very, very soon after the writing of the Apocalypse or Revelation by St. John the Evangelist. So, Even these early Christian poets that we do know, if we know early Christian poetry, actually the earliest stuff is is from even before them. We don't actually know the name of the writer of these poems. They're called the Odes of Solomon. There are 42 odes in all that we know of, though it's hypothesized that there may be many more. The Odes of Solomon seem to suggest that the writer of them would like to be known as Solomon. And in fact, there's a whole body of kind of apocryphal Solomonic writings uh, from the late Jewish and early Christian period where people would write under the name Solomon to kind of lend themselves and their writings um, an air of, say, uh, wisdom, pithiness. After all, the Solomon figure is the figure of the wise king, uh, of the one who hands down proverbial sayings, but who also, as we know through the Song of Solomon, can write very passionate love poetry. So when people wrote under the name of Solomon in the late Jewish and early Christian age, this isn't necessarily them assuming people will think I'm King Solomon, but it's a way of kind of indicating, I want to write in this sort of wisdom poetic tradition. So the Odes of Solomon are actually a pretty recent discovery of contemporary scholarship. It was in the late 1800s, early 1900s that People started finding and comparing manuscripts by someone who called themselves Solomon with a collection of odes or poems titled The Odes of Solomon. And we sort of have pieced together over the first few decades of the 20th century this picture of a writer who's writing around 100 AD, give or take a decade or three, who seems to know of Christian theology, but also be very steeped in Jewish poetic form and Jewish understandings of God and also Jewish culture. Uh, He clearly knows, or if we want a positive female writer, it could be female, she clearly knows the Psalms of David, the writings of Solomon. There was actually, uh, if it hasn't got confusing enough already, an earlier collection of poems written by a Jewish author, probably pre-Christian, called the Psalms of Solomon, uh, which some thought at first the Odes of Solomon must be written by the same person who wrote the Psalms of Solomon. But contemporary scholarship thinks, no, this is a separate person. It's a Christian who knows Jewish literature very well, 
probably someone who lived in the northern Middle Eastern area, possibly somewhere around Antioch, someone who knew the Syriac language, which is a further development of the Aramaic language, which Jesus spoke, but who also may have spoken and written in Greek. So we have this writer who's kind of steeped in three different literary traditions, both the Greek, the Hebrew, Jewish, but also the Syriac tradition. And some of the Odes of Solomon that we have are, in fact, in the Syriac language. Some of them are in Greek, and at least one of them we only have a Latin translation of. I want to start by reading, actually, this Latin ode that we have. It's usually called Ode Number One. I want to read it and help you get a feel for this writer who's living at this strange time. The apostles are all dead. But most of the people who knew the apostles, uh, people like Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp, people like this, Clement, the first Clement, not Clement of Alexandria, Clement the Pope of Rome, all of them who knew the apostles are still alive. And Christianity has spread throughout the Mediterranean world. And Christians not only speak Greek, they also speak Syriac, they speak Aramaic, they speak Latin. It's starting to become a worldwide or at least continent-wide phenomenon. So here's Solomon's first ode. The Lord is a crown around my head, and I will not remove it. He interweaves my crown with truth, and palms shoot up within me. An arid crown cannot beget, but mine, it thrives above me. Your buds are blooming on my brow, with fruit so full and ripe, it blossoms with salvation. So this is a short poem. Depending on how you count lines, it's either four lines or maybe as many as eight or nine lines. And then I'll explain why there's this dual numbering I'm giving. Both David in his psalms and Asaph and the sons of Korah and the others who write psalms in the book of psalms use an interesting approach to poetic form where lines are broken up into pairs of two sections or sometimes even three or four sections. And contemporary scholars call these sections of lines versets. And usually you'll see if you flip open your Bible to any random psalm, you'll see that the lines of psalms often have a first line and a second and maybe even third line which are indented under the first line. And then we go back to the unindented second line and then other lines that are indented below it. Traditionally, these sections of lines, the first one of which isn't indented, and then the second, and if there's a third and fourth that are, these are called versets. So Solomon's first ode is nine versets long, but usually we count groupings of versets, basically an unindented line and all the lines that are indented below it, as one line. So this is four lines, the first three lines are made up of two versets. The fourth line is made up of three versets. Now, why does this matter? Well, because this isn't just a random, I wanted to indent some stuff because it'll look cool on the page. This is 
an approach to poetry that uses the second and following versets to comment on and parallel and riff on the first verset. This is how Psalms works. If you've ever talked at all about genres in biblical literature, say, one of the first things you learn is that Hebrew verse is not based on meter. You're not counting out syllables and stressed or unstressed syllables or long and short vowel patterns. You are thinking about the relationship between versets within a line and how subsequent versets after the first verset are paralleling and creating difference between their meaning and the verset above them. So let's look at how this is working in Solomon's first ode. The Lord is a crown around my head, line one, verset one, and I will not remove it. That's still line one, but that's the second verset of line one. So the Lord is a crown around my head and I will not remove it. This is parallelism, but kind of subtle. Sometimes we expect parallelism to be a little bit more clear. I walked to the park, to the park I strode. That would be a very strong parallelism. I even repeat my same lines. But sometimes parallelistic structures are in fact stating a truth and then elaborating on that truth. It's a parallelism of specification, we might say. I give a general thought and I talk about what exact kind of thing it is or a further quality of that thing. So the Lord is a crown around my head and I will not remove it. God is around his head. The Lord is around his head like a crown. And he's specifying that it's going to stay there. This is a permanent crown, the implication seems to be. Second line, he interweaves my crown with truth and palms shoot up within me. This is beautiful. He interweaves my crown with truth verse at one of line two. Okay, so what kind of a crown is it? We've heard that it's around his head and he's leaving it there. He's not going to cast off the Lord. There's this idea of faithfulness that's already been established. He interweaves my crown with truth. Okay, so this crown is symbolically at least somehow interweaved with truth. Truth and the truthfulness of the Lord is something that's permanently going to be surrounding him and that he is not going to abandon. He interweaves my crown with truth. That's sort of an external image. It's also a very weird connection of ideas. Interweaving a crown is very physical, especially if you're weaving a crown, say, out of leaves or reeds. That's a very physical activity. You might even get little cuts on your fingers. It might be meticulous. You might get sweaty sitting there trying to interweave an intricate crown. But what's being interweaven into it? Truth. Interesting. So the Solomon poet right away lets us know, I'm going to give you very concrete images, but throw in very abstract ideas as well. This poetry is anticipating what T.S. Eliot would call uh, metaphysical poetry, the poetry that's usually talked about as the poets of the uh, 17th century, who really liked bringing together these very disparate images and putting them together in metaphors or similes or figurative language. John Donne very famously talks about how if you hammer out a piece of gold thin enough, you can stretch it a long way, but it will still be connected either end with each other. And he says, that's what our souls are like, you and me, my beloved. So 
this weird idea of metallurgy pounding out gold so it's very thin but still all connected with the idea of the connection of the human souls of the beloved and lover. We see that sort of metaphysical conceit here in Solomon first, that an intricate crown that is woven around someone's head is like the truth that the Lord gives to his follower who is faithful to him. And then he moves internal. He says, palms shoot up within me. We have an external physical crown that has truth in it, and now we have an internal state within me, uh, within the soul, the ontological being of the speaker. What's going on in there? Palms, physical concrete objects, are shooting up within him. This is a very internal, external, concrete, abstract juxtapositions that are going on. And in fact, there's a complex parallelism going on here that I want to try and articulate, and it's a little complicated, so bear with me. He interweaves my crown with truth. Interweaving a crown is a physical image, but it's then given a metaphysical nuance. Interweaves crown with truth. So physical image, metaphysical nuance. And palms shoot up, second verset of second line, and palms shoot up, that's another physical image within me metaphysical nuance. So one of the ways that there's parallelism in between the two versets of this second line is that not only do both give us images of palm crowns, though they do, they have a patterning of giving a physical image followed by a metaphysical nuance twice in a row. That's not something that's going on in the lines above, in the versets of the first line above. The Lord is a crown around my head and I will not remove it. That's a simpler parallelism. It's a simple specification of what kind of crown it is and how it will be treated. Here we have parallelism both in palm crown imagery, but also in conceptual movement. There's this sort of misconception, I think, that takes place, especially in contemporary uh, literary critical circles, that Modern poetry, especially poetry written, say, from the early 20th century to the early 21st century, that's where really complicated things happen in poetry. And then if we go further back in time, especially in Western poetry, poetry becomes more and more simple, right? We look at the 19th century and everything's just a little more sentimental, a little simpler, a little easier. And then we go back even further to something like Beowulf and you just have people who are mostly interested in, you know, uh, big monsters that people have fights with. Oh, oh, that's even more simple than the 19th century sentimentalists. And then we get to ancient poetry and it should be really, really simple, right? N none of these complicated conceptions of figurative language or cultural political nuances. We wouldn't see any of those. That, that's, that's for our modern age. We're the complex, we're the wise and nuanced writers, right? No, no way, no way, if anything. And I mean, it, we could fall into the opposite problem too, that only the ancient is complex and wise and everything new is dumb, right? So that's a reverse ageism. Really great poetry from the earliest known writings of, say, the Egyptians or, uh, or the Greeks or, or the Chinese. We have very early Chinese poetry uh, in the Xi Qing. I'm pronouncing that wrong. Please, please forgive me. The Book of Songs. This poetry should always be approached, I think, open to the idea that it can be just as complex, 
just as well thought out, well crafted, both in ideas, in, con in concepts, and in formal structures as anything we write today. And it's certainly true, and I, I challenge anyone to discuss this if they, if they disagree, I think it's certainly true that past ages have been much more formally complex and even much more formally educated than we are when it comes to poetic form itself. We are an age of slipshod form, and we've even declared that we will be the age from the modernists onward, though we've had a conception of ourselves as, as writing very difficult, fragmented, complex verse for a difficult, fragmented, complex world, as Eliot called for, we have become elementary and even pre-elementary in our understanding of prosody, that is, the art of crafting formal verse. I'm not making this up. This isn't a discovery of mine. Uh, uh, Dana Joya writes a lot about this in his uh, essay collection, Can Poetry Matter, from the mid-90s. And again, in subsequent essays, I know I've gotten distracted from the Odes of Solomon, but when a writer, a writer who's writing in probably Syriac, a development of Aramaic that Jesus spoke, when a Syriac writer can craft two lines of verse where there's both concrete parallelism and parallelism of conceptual development between the grammatical structures in each verset. That's a poetry that we can learn from, not just about God, though clearly that this is a passionate poem from a believer to his God, but we can learn from this as poets, as creators. I think what we lose whenever we stop paying attention to a time period of poetry or movement in poetry is we lose the ability to learn from that poetry about the possibilities of writing. And also, maybe more importantly, the possibilities for meaning in the world. Let's read the last two versets and conclude. An arid crown cannot beget, but mine, it thrives above me. Your buds are blooming on my brow with fruit so full and ripe, it blossoms with salvation. So what's fun is we've had the first two lines, or first four versets, focusing on this crown. We find that the Lord has put it on the head of the speaker. The speaker will not remove it. They want to uh, stay faithful to it. The crown is interweaved with truth. And at the same time as the crown is interweaved with truth, uh, new growth is springing up within the speaker as a palm branch springs. But now we have sort of a parallelism of negation. Uh, we see this a lot in Proverbs. The wise man does X, the fool does Y. The wise man builds his house on the rock, the fool builds it on the sand. So we have these contrasts, but still there's sort of a structure. The structure of how a thing is said is the same, but in fact, what's being described are contrasting or even opposite phenomenon. So we've had this crown that's very positive and this image of growth that's very positive. An arid crown cannot beget, but mine it thrives above me. So we get, this, we get this sort of negative image. A crown that's arid, that has no growth in it. It won't beget. Now beget, of course, is a very important word in early Christianity. Why? Because Christ is the only begotten of the Father. And that word begotten is going to develop into the crux of the Arian-Nicene division 
in the 300s. But the Solomon poet shows it's just as important to him in the early 2nd century AD in showing that what God gives us, what is truly given by God, is something that will beget, that will be generative, just as God himself is always generative. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, not once begotten, but eternally begotten of the Father. An arid crown cannot beget, but mine, it thrives above me. I like that. He's saying, look, there's a type of crown that isn't going to be helpful, that isn't going to cause growth. And I will prove to you that mine is not that because you can see it thriving. Your buds, so this is the last line, it consists of three versets. The critical consensus seems to be, though there are some indications, I would argue in the Latin original text, that maybe it was originally two versets, but after all, this is a translation from either Syriac or Greek. So there's a little, a little bit of wiggle room, um, of course, Perhaps that does not matter to you how many versets it is in the original Syriac or Greek. But this is one of the things that I think we need to be honest about, especially when we're talking about translated verse. I translated this poem, and I really struggled whether I wanted to put this last line in two or three versets. There seems to be a consensus it should be three, so I went with that. If someone wants to find a great translator and commentator on the Odes of Solomon, James Charlesworth who translated these many years ago, but is still alive and working today. He has a great translation of the Odes of Solomon. So, your buds are blooming on my brow with fruit so full and ripe, it blossoms with salvation. An interesting thing happens here in the wording. In the first three lines for six versets, when God is mentioned, God is in the third person. But as often happens in Hebrew poetry, especially in the poems of David, we might start off with the Lord is a warrior, the Lord is mighty in battle. But often by the end of the poem, the third person Lord has become you, has become almost the beloved of the writer of the psalm. And that happens again. You, not he, not the Lord, your buds are blooming on my brow. This is a restatement of the blooming. Mine, it thrives above me in the second verset of line three. And then the first verset of line four, your buds are blooming on my brow, right? Buds is a little different than just a thriving crown or even palms. Buds mean new life has been created, but also further flourishing will take place. Your buds are blooming on my brow with fruit. Oh, we have fruit now. We, we, have, we have almost the whole life cycle of a tree going on here. Your buds are blooming on my brow with fruit so full and ripe. Oh, now the fruit is ripe. It blossoms with salvation. And once again, we have this wonderful movement in this third verset where we have a bud, it blossoms, the fruit is full and ripe. Is it going to burst open with seeds? No, it's going to burst open with salvation. All of a sudden, we have this movement, once again, from the concrete to the metaphysical. In fact, that movement in this fourth line is paralleling the parallel movements in both versets of line two. So the even-numbered lines have the same conceptual movement in them. Very tricky, Solomon poet. You are packing this relatively short poem with patterns of conceptual movement 
I like it. I like it. I respect it. I want to learn from it. This is a relatively simple poem, but I hope that in talking about it, we've seen the possibilities of early Christian verse. Next time, I want to move forward in time and talk about some poetry from the two and three hundreds and show how Christian poetry develops. But I want to double down on something at the end here. If I could give an assignment to all lovers of poetry, all lovers of literature, is to look back at the literary output of the early Christian mothers and fathers of the church, not just at their prose, but at their poetry. In poetry, as we talked about many times before, the writer has an ability to show both their most vulnerable emotional side at the same time as their most dedicatedly artistic and craftsman-like side. It's maybe even a paradox of art. The most highly crafted, patient work is that which communicates the most raw emotion when successfully done, and maybe even the most lofty thoughts. The early Christians were not devoid of this work. In a later poem, the Solomon poet uh, would say, as a fountain gushes forth its water, so my heart gushes forth the praise of the Lord, and my lips bring forth praise to him. My tongue becomes sweet by his anthems, and my members are anointed by his odes. This is a poet who knows what he's doing. He knows that his work is poetry. His work is this crafting of songs for God. And he sees the relationship between the worker and the work as the relationship between the spring or the fountain and the water that flows out from it. From the beginning of the church, we have an understanding that the creative life, especially the creative life and dedication to God, is one, a life worth living, and two, a life possible to live, that there's not some sort of inherent uh, contradiction between the aesthetic life the life of work on art, and the life of the Christian. Because in the end, the Christian life, if the fathers and mothers of the church are to be believed, is a life of working on the self. And that life is possible not because somehow humans can earn you know, salvation or goodness on their own, but because grace has been offered to do so. A spirit has been offered us to help work on us, to change us from within, just as the artist, the poet, works to make words, those clumsy things like our souls, start to sing. This has been the Poetry Corner Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell.